welcome back to Generals and Napoleon. We have a special guest here for episode 34 with uh, my friend Charles McKay. Say hello, Charles. Hey, how's it going? Thanks yeah, for having thanks. me, John. Yeah, thanks for joining. Um, Charles is a graduate of the Institute of French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Studies at Florida State University here in the States. And he's an independent scholar and he's an expert, I would say, Charles, in the focus of our episode today, which is General Andoche Junot. How'd I do with that? That's fantastic. You got it right on. All right. So such an interesting guy. Um, I like to refer to him as the near marshal or the marshal that never was because he had so many prerequisites of becoming a Napoleonic marshal. You know, he was friendly with the emperor. He had success in the field early on in his career. He held independent commands, but he never got that treasured baton. And I was wondering, how close do you think he was to getting one? You know, that's a great question. And in a lot of secondary sources, especially the older ones and the older English ones, he's sometimes erroneously referred to as a marshal. But as you correctly pointed out, he, he never made a marshal's baton. I kind of think in uh, 1807, when he was sent to invade Portugal, if he had managed to capture the Portuguese fleet, then uh, Mm -hmm. that is as close as he got. I don't know if he would have gotten the Marshal's baton, but that's definitely as close as he got. Yeah, because he was he got his dukedom around that time. So, yes, that's exactly right. Yep. Yeah. So. All right. Well, we'll get to that point. Um, let's kind of jump into it, though. And um, yeah, let's discuss his early life. Um, he was born September 1771. Um, but I don't think he came from nobility, right? Did he have a good uh, upbringing as a child? Yeah, actually, he did. He had a close family, uh, two parents, uh, who uh, both of whom, well, his father survived him. Um, he had uh, brothers and sisters. He had a comfortable kind of middle class. His uh, uh, father was a notary and, uh, you know, he got a good education, went off to study law. Um, So he was well-educated. Fortunately for me, and you never really realize this until you get into the primary sources, he was renowned for his excellent penmanship. (laughs) So, yeah, so the archival records are in this gorgeous script that he had. Uh, So clearly he was was well-educated, but he did come from a middle-class background. Okay. And like you said, it seems like he was studying law when he answered the call of the military during 1791. You know, the French Revolution is going on. Um, And he's quickly promoted to sergeant. Uh, And then in 1793, at the Siege of Toulon, he meets a guy who's going to change the course of his life, correct? Yeah, that's right. He was technically a volunteer in the 1792 when the French called up volunteers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he enrolled in his uh, department, Cote d'Or. And uh, uh, he quickly rose up in part from his personal charisma and mm-hmm. also through his, you know, bravery in, in combat. Yeah, I, I read that, you know, Napoleon liked him and, and made him, I think, I don't know if it was a secretary. Napoleon wasn't commanding the siege. He was just one of the generals on the scene, but he was doing a lot of the strategy. But I talked about it in an earlier episode. In these times, to be someone's personal secretary was kind of a, an important position, correct? Yes, that's correct. Yep. Yep. And um, I love that that famous story where you know Napoleon and Junot are in a foxhole and a shell nearby explodes, fired from a cannon. 
and it sprays them with sand. And as you know, bravely quips, he no longer needs to sand to dry the ink of Napoleon's dispatches. I love that story. <laughs> yeah, and that's uh, we do have multiple sources for that. So that 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 apparently is is true. And um, you know, apparently, as you know, said it with a with a little bit of a wink as well. So. What? Was he just fearless or he was just so focused on what he was doing? He didn't really care what was going on. Around. No, I, th- I think in that case, at that age, I think he was fearless. Yeah. Yeah. yeah He'd yeah. already racked up some wounds. He got a pretty serious head wound at the siege of uh, Longwee uh, before even getting too, too long. So, yeah, yeah he's a hard charger. And, that, and that's going to be a motif throughout his life, right? He's always at the front getting wounds and, and being in the Particularly mix. to the head. Yeah. You know, poor old Udno collects lots of wounds, but Juno True. seems to take them all right to the head, which okay. is a problem. Yeah. He's got to duck more often, I guess. But um, <laughs> after Toulon, though, um, what kind of becomes him? I know, does, does Napoleon promote him to officer or does he just recommend him or what happens there? Yeah, so after Toulon, the two of them become fast friends, and it's really through Napoleon's patronage that Juno becomes an officer and rises through the ranks, which is not unusual. You know, during that revolutionary period, anybody showing any kind of ability and talent, it rose through the ranks pretty quickly. Okay. So he follows, I guess, um, Napoleon to Italy, and during, I mean, there's, I've read this, it's during different battles, but he receives a serious head wound uh, from a saber and some claim that it led to a change in his personality, causing him to act rashly and it lowered his judgment ability. Do you think that was accurate or do you think it was other things? Uh, You know, I'm not sure if it's that one wound at uh, Leonardo to what you're referring that, that, that causes that as i said he got dinged uh, quite a few times in the head yeah, yeah i read uh, another battle he killed like six men but again was sabered to the head like you know it just seems like the guy was always like you said a hard charger yeah especially in those you know he's not a general division at that point so he's definitely in the front ranks uh leading charges and things so after italy now general of brigade you know accompanies Napoleon on the Egyptian campaign, where, again, he serves on the front lines. Uh, He fights in the Battle of the Pyramids. He helps secure the victory on Mount Tabor. But oddly enough, when Napoleon departs secretly back to France, he doesn't take his old friend with him. He took others like Lon and Murat and Eugene. But why do you think he didn't take Junot? Well, this one's easy. He had a remote post. He was in the Suez kind of uh, basically looking at the approaches of the Red Sea for any, you know, possible British incursion from the direction of India. So uh, he was too far removed uh, to to accompany Napoleon when he left. That makes sense, because he also didn't take back Desai or Davu or some of the other big hitters. So that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yep. All right. So from there, um, he I think he returns to France, but he's captured along the way by the British, I think. Yeah, that's correct. And then he's kind of repatriated and he supported, at least from afar, Napoleon's coup for power. Absolutely. And then in the year 1800, he marries a very outspoken lady. Uh, can, you tell us, <laughs> uh, can you tell us a bit about this this woman that he marries? I mean, you could do, honestly, you could do a whole podcast just on her because she had an amazing <laughs> life as well. So she uh, came from a Corsican family, which is how Bonaparte 
uh, kind of, in, that's how Juno got introduced to her. They would go to, um, Laura Juno's mother had a salon, which Bonaparte frequented. So mm. that's how uh, Juno came to, to, you know, meet Laura's acquaintance. And, you know, she was outspoken and, and strong-willed and they had a tumultuous uh, marriage, uh, which had some kids. And then uh, after Juno's death, uh, Laura went on to kind of scratch out a living uh, writing memoirs. Mm. And anyone that studies the period is, is familiar with the memoirs of Madame Juno. Right. So she was prolific and salacious. She was more of a gossiper, it sounds like. Like, it, like a lot of these, like you said, memoirs maybe weren't proven. Uh, that is exactly correct. Yeah. Which is sometimes a little problematic when you're doing some research to try and figure out, okay, is this true? Is it not true? How much of it is true? Um, but she took Honoré Balzac, the author, as a lover who was uh, 15 years her, her junior. He helped publish her memoirs. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Madame Juno, you know, whatever, she had to make a living after her husband died, I get it, but he was a bit wild this time, too, with, like, gambling debts. Uh, absolutely, yeah, he was, and, you know, that could cut two ways, so there was a period when Bonaparte was unemployed in Paris in the mid-1790s, mm-hmm. and uh, Juno's father sent, it, it was uh, Juno and the future Marshal Marmont mm-hmm. and Napoleon all sharing one apartment together. And the only income they had really was from Juno's father. And then Juno would take that. He was especially fond of, of uh, blackjack uh, <laughs> and actually elongated, you know, made stretched that money that his father sent them into enough to eke out a pauper's existence uh, while they were in Paris. So he had some skill uh, and was a decent card player. But, uh, you know, eventually, though, he racks up all kinds of debts. Uh, and not just with uh, cards or gambling, but, you know, he lived large and liked to live large and like fancy clothes and carriages and houses and, you know, gowns for his wife and entertaining. Yeah, yeah he, he very much enjoyed living large. Yeah, he, he kind of reminds me of uh, Marshall Victor. Kind of he needed to tell everyone how important he was. I, and he would do that to anyone who would listen. Yeah, yeah, I yep. can see that. OK, yep. well. This next position probably doesn't help his ego. He's briefly named ambassador to Portugal, um, but he's not named one of the original 18 marshals of the empire. Um, I guess his ambassadorship doesn't last long because he he hurries back to get involved in the Battle of Auschwitz, correct? 
yes, yeah. yes, and and you know, Marshall Lawn held the ambassadorship before Juno, correct? And then Juno was there to you know kind of continue, but you know, there's some symbolism though in that that Napoleon's first choice for ambassador in Lawn is a literally a peasant who is elevated to the position of a marshal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so certainly disrespectful for royalty. And obviously Lon had no diplomatic skill whatsoever. He was a, <laughs> he was a total general. There's a story he used to walk through the palaces in Portugal with his saber, uh, literally clanking against the ground, yeah. striking fear into the, into the Portuguese Royal family. Yeah. So that when Lon is recalled and Napoleon sends Juno at that point, yeah, everybody knows Juno was Napoleon's very first uh, aide de camp, right. and you know he's been governor of Paris, and so this is an, a really close intimate of Napoleon getting sent to Lisbon, which of course carries with it just that symbolism carries a lot of gravitas for how important Napoleon regarded that uh, that mission to to Lisbon. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I touched on it earlier. Also, during this time, you know, he's rumored to have an affair with Caroline Bonaparte. Why does Napoleon keep employing this guy? So the affair with Caroline comes later, of course, uh, right. and that's in fact why Juno ends up getting set, made the commander of the army that goes into Portugal to get him out of town uh, after uh-huh. his uh, flandering with with Caroline. But the one thing, and this is ultimately what keeps Napoleon employing Juno over and over and over throughout his entire career. You know, if there's one thing that Napoleon desperately wanted from everybody, it was loyalty. Mm. And Juno was unfailingly loyal. True. True. He gets made the governor of Paris because Juno has absolutely no political ambitions whatsoever. Right. I mean, none. So and like the opposite of Bernadotte who might want exactly. to. Exactly. I got you. Yeah. And so when the Grand Armée goes off to, you know, destroy the Prussians and then, you know, fend off the, the Russians in Poland, 1806 and 1807, Juno is the governor of Paris because he is a completely loyal right. uh, to Napoleon. I mean, no sense. ambition for politics at all. That makes perfect sense. OK, so I mean, and, and to the point that I, I mean, Juno has so little ambition he just doesn't have any cognizance of this so when he has an affair with caroline right whose husband is murat and whose brother is napoleon you would think holy cow this is this is <laughs> this is career suicide yeah right yeah. I, it, both napoleon and murat understood this is caroline scheming right but napoleon doesn't hold anything against you know because he knows that Juno know, has no political ambition whatsoever right right yeah okay so Napoleon gets back, you know, he's crushed Prussia, and now he's fixating his eyes on Portugal because he can't get across the English Channel to attack England, so he'll attack their, their closest, oldest ally, Portugal. And in 1807, he tells, you know, hey, look, if you can capture the capital of Lisbon, despite an awful march through Spain, I'm going to give you the marshal's baton. Do you think... Well, tell us a bit about that campaign, if you don't mind. I know it was strenuous. And I mean, as you know, just was basically plowing through Spain through awful weather and terrain. And he only arrived, I think, with like, you know, 1500 soldiers. But he he captured the capital as he was ordered to do. Yeah. So. uh, Yeah. So Napoleon did not I've not found any literature where he specifically said 
you capture the Portuguese fleet and, and I'm going to give you a marshal's baton. But that was certainly the buzz around town. I see. So Napoleon now part didn't... of it was also, dude, you got to get out of town because you just had an affair with the emperor's <laughs> sister. <laughs> but the other part of it is he had been to Lisbon. He knew the terrain. He knew right. the Portuguese court. Right. And people were telling him, man, listen, you ace this and, you know, you're going to get that baton finally. Because, right. you know, it's got to suck for him. His entire peer group are all marshals. And, yeah. you know, and he's that, the that, one guy that's staring in from the outside. So I that, know it bothered him. Yeah, and that must have made him crazy, especially in 1807. Victor became a marshal, too. So he's probably thinking, well, what do I have to do to get a baton? So Right. So yeah. obviously, and he drove his soldiers uh, from this corps into from France into Lisbon. I mean, he drove these soldiers remorselessly trying to get to the Portuguese capital. Mm-hmm. And Napoleon had set a deadline for December first, and the French were were uh, cooperating, in, at least in theory, with the Spanish. And the normal route has you going through Burgos and Salamanca and Ciudad Rodrigo and Almeida and and into Portugal that way. But after Ciudad Rodrigo, Napoleon wanted, as you know, to, to drop south to the Tagus and then follow the Tagus due west. Mm. Well, there are no roads there. Right. I mean, it was a wasteland. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's late November, early December. The weather was inclement. There's no forage. The Spanish right. were supposed to provide you know, resources and supplies. And of course, that didn't happen. So by the time the, the 1,500 soldiers of the 70th line stagger into Lisbon. I mean, they looked like ragamuffins right. um, after such a strenuous march. And it took the cavalry and the artillery another uh, seven to 10 days, even to straggle in without any Portuguese opposition. Right. And I, you know, I, I'm, I'm impressed that he did what, you know, he told Napoleon he would do. He captured the capital, but I think, was it Napoleon that was angry that not only the fleet, but the Portuguese royal family escaped before Junot got there. Correct. And I mean, you want to talk about a close run thing. So as the French army is approaching, uh, the winds were contrary. And so the fleet with the royal family on the fleet was stuck in the harbor for nearly three days. Mm. And when the first French soldiers arrive, they could see the Portuguese fleet. And apparently it was close enough that they could fire the guns at the fleet. But uh-huh. it wasn't enough to compel the fleet to, to of course, turn around and come back. But, yeah, so, I, I read that. It was a close-run thing. I mean, they even captured some of their baggage and, and yep. like, jewelry uh, and gold before they, yep. they, they launched. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, the, the big prize, the, the rump of the Portuguese Navy and, of course, the, the Portuguese royal family uh, escaped to Brazil. Okay, so... Um, Napoleon does make him Duke of Abrantes as a semi-reward. It's not necessarily a marshal's baton, but it's, it's, it's a nice reward for doing what he was supposed to do. Um, but he's soon defeated by the future Duke of Wellington at Vimero. Uh, was that a close run battle or did you know just before poorly? <laughs> no, there wasn't anything close about that battle. Um, <laughs> that, um yeah, yeah. Part of it was that the the French had had a hard time, uh, you know, once the Spanish revolted in May, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that the Portuguese, it took a little bit longer, but they revolted as well. Mm -hmm. And Juno's core of about 25,000 was, you know, trying to put out fires all over the place. So it it was late, you know, know, the, the army rallied, came together 
but it was just a, you know, he only had about 13,000 of his 25,000 that were there. Right. He had to leave a sizable contingent in Lisbon, both to protect against a British landing. And there was also a Russian Navy that had sought protection because the British and the Russians were technically at war at that point. Mm -hmm. And so the Russian Navy had sought protection in Lisbon, but the Russian Admiral uh, hated the French. And so in no way would aid the French in defending Lisbon. So they just sat there and ate a lot of resources and, and didn't help. So Juno's constantly looking over his shoulder at that. And, uh, you know, when they get to the battle, um, there's some sources that, you know, at 7.30 in the, in the morning, he arrives at the battle. He's probably drunk. Uh, <laughs> contemporary sources say that you know, he, he reeked of alcohol. Right. So he was probably loaded. And then after the battle, he left in an open carriage with two of the wives of his officers who were both wounded uh, and still left on the field of battle. Uh, all right. Well, that tells you all I need to know about Juno. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. So Wellesley deserves the victory. He won. Uh, there's no other way to put that. As you know, split his command. He had two divisions and he sent brigades from different divisions off on flanking maneuvers. It was just a very poorly run battle uh, on the part of the French. Well, I guess the best thing that can be said is he secured some favorable terms for his surrender uh, with the convention of Centro there. So that's a fun story. So um, I don't know how much you want me to go into it, but the, yeah, ma the man so. he sent, okay, the man he sent to negotiate uh, was his, his cavalry commander, Kellerman, yep. who was the son of the marshal. Yep. Uh, and what the British didn't know was Kellerman had spent time as a diplomat in the United States. So Kellerman was fluent in English, mm -hmm. but when they go to, to, to Parley, of course, they, they speak in the diplomatic language, which is French. Right. And Kellerman didn't volunteer that he knew English. Mm. So they did the initial discussions in French. And then when the English, <laughs> because at this point, there are three generals, there's Dalrymple, there's Burrard, and there's, there's Wellesley. Right. And they go off, you know, to an adjacent room to, to discuss and you know that the discussion got animated because wellesley's like let's not give him an inch i want to drive this thing all the way to lisbon right and berard and dalrymple had just gotten there they were not commanders that's a story for another time but kellerman could overhear everything <laughs> so he knew exactly what buttons to press uh -huh. to get a favorable armistice which eventually turned into the convention of censure which was you know, the French were transported back to uh, yeah. France, all their weapons, all yep. their arms, most of their loot, frankly. Yeah. And they weren't even paroled. I mean, it was so the three generals, Berard, Dalrymple and Wellesley, got court-martialed. Right. Um, and only the, the future Duke of Wellington, Wellesley, was the only one to return. So. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Correct. That's just I love that story. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, Napoleon in his correspondence wrote that, all right, you know, it's not a victory, but, you know, he, he literally brought everything back. Those guys landed and literally a week later, they're marching right back into Spain. <laughs> That's amazing. So, yeah. Yeah. Later, you know, um, moving on in our story, you know, he helps Napoleon reconquer Madrid after the setback at Bailen. And um, after that, though, after Napoleon kind of, reconquers Madrid and the English are pushed off of Corona. Um, is Junot somewhat sidelined after that? No. So he, he takes part in the siege of Saragossa, oh, yeah. which, you know, legendary lore. I mean, such an awful, awful siege. Yeah. And 
this did really hurt his mental state uh, because the, you know, I mean, we're talking vicious hand-to-hand fighting. You know, at one point in one church, the French hold one part of it yep. and the, the Spanish hold the other, literally in the building. Yeah. And uh, Juno was not the only, you know, French soldier traumatized by the brutal nature of that of that siege. Yeah. Uh, but he does take part in the siege of Saragossa. Yep. And then in 1809, he's used as a corps commander, essentially guarding the lines of communication uh, during the um, Austrian campaign mm-hmm. uh, and protecting the French army from any kind of incursion that might come from Bohemia. Okay. And the Austrians did send a corps out, as you know, and the Austrians tangled there in some minor engagements and things. But mm-hmm. he performed, you know, fine, competently uh, in, in 1809. Not spectacularly, but decently, yeah. Okay. Right, absolutely, yep. So after that, though, he goes back to Spain and serves under Massena. But That's correct. He and Marshal Ney didn't really get along with Massena. Um, what kind of happens there? Is he just wants to do things his way, or he just he's probably just, I would imagine, still angry that he's still a general of division. So that whole, you know, the whole command structure in Spain is just messed up. You know, the marshals don't want to take orders from other marshals. Mm-hmm. And nobody respects Joseph uh, or Jordan, his, you know, marshal military advisor. Uh, right. And so there's no centralized command. Mm-hmm. Um, and the resources are, are really limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, every resource is limited, uh, you know, trying to get siege guns to carry out sieges or trying to, you know, marshal enough food in one area to concentrate soldiers. And everybody is bitterly guarding, you know, holding on to what they have. And, you know, there's just not a lot of cooperation. Mm-hmm. And Messena of 1810 is not the Messena of 1799. Right. And so uh, he tenaciously holds his ground outside of the lines mm-hmm. for far longer than anybody expected. Right. But, you know, there's just not enough resources to carry the excellent defenses that the, you know, the British had had set yeah. up there. Yeah, the but, the, you know, that Renier, Ney and Juno, the three corps commanders of that army of Portugal, you know, they don't respect each other. They don't respect Messina. Right. Um, it's it's just dysfunctional. Yeah. And uh, eventually both Ney and Juno are recalled. Um, yeah, Juno got shot in the head again. Um, <laughs> so he is sent home to recuperate. And of course, Ney is relieved to command for insubordination. Right. And then, you know, ultimately, as you well know, you know, Massani gets recalled and um, replaced as well. Yeah. So moving on to Juno's story, um, he's placed in, a, in the invasion army for the Russian campaign. Uh, you know, obviously that was a bad campaign for Napoleon all around. Do Junot's fortunes improve or worsen in Russia? Uh, yeah, they worsen. And he was not part of the A team. He was not originally given command. But um, uh, when Napoleon's youngest brother, Jerome, mm-hmm. has a spat with Davout, uh, Jerome, you know, basically picks up his toys and leaves. <laughs> And so Napoleon needs a replacement to write for the eighth corps. And that's, that's where Juno steps in. Um, And God bless Juno. This just was not, this was not his campaign. Uh, There's this one critical moment uh, near Smolensk 
where it looks like the French are about to cut off a portion of the Russian army. Mm-hmm. And Junot's task was to, uh, you know, cross this marsh and close off the retreat. Mm-hmm. And Junot uh, is strangely motionless. Right. And Murat even rides across the battlefield to find him and says, literally, you know, close the gap and the marshal's baton is yours. Right. And Junot apparently, again, might have been intoxicated at that time, but didn't have explicit orders from the emperor, or at least he didn't think that he did. And so he never really, I mean, he made a couple of feeble attempts to cross the marsh, but he did not close the gap and the Russians escaped. Yeah. And Napoleon was furious uh, and blamed Junot for the loss of the campaign up until that point. Yeah. Um, There's a great quote uh, from Napoleon after the Smolensk battle, quote, Junot gave me great cause of dissatisfaction. He was no longer the same man and committed some gross blunders, which cost us dear, end quote. Yeah. 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 And that was, uh, you know, that was psychologically devastating uh, to Junot. Now he performs well at Borodino. He's at the battle of Borodino Mm -hmm. at the head of the Westphalians. He performs well. But mm-hmm. after the battle, uh, Napoleon punishes Juno by making him, well, him and the Westphalians, clean up the battlefield after the Battle of Bordino. Uh, what an awful task. That oh, be. I mean, can you imagine tens of thousands of, of human remains and, and horses and, yeah. you know, draft animals and things? So instead of going with his friends to party in Moscow, he's left to deal with, you know, carrion and and all of that so the letters that he sent back to his wife were just i mean they're gut-wrenching to read yeah i can imagine yep so he survives the retreat from russia he does yeah but this uh, like he already had a fragile mental state and this is before mental illness was well known correct imagine a a retreat through sub-zero temperatures is helping anything uh, no, probably not. And he was there with the Grand Armée as it, as it, you know, I mean, he, he was there at the Baratsina. I mean, he, he hung with the army the, the whole time. Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, he's hanging out in, in Poland mm-hmm. and Eugene asks Napoleon, you know, what do I do with this guy? <laughs> and uh, Napoleon wrote something along the lines. I can find the direct quote if we, if we need it later, but he says something along the lines of you can send the, the Duke of Abrantes home. That's one less encumbrance from the army. And he would be uh-huh. of absolutely no use to you. Wow. Okay. So yeah, Juno is recalled and, and then Juno carries out this campaign along with his wife, trying to pressure Napoleon to, you know, give him another command, give him another chance. He desperately wants to get back into the good graces with the emperor. And it's difficult stuff to read. I mean, he's obsequious and it's just tough to read. Um, It just like his career started off so well and had a lot of potential. And then each passing year, it got worse and worse. Yeah, and, you know, he was probably promoted beyond his abilities. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I think if he'd stayed a colonel in the cavalry, he'd uh, probably had a super fantastic career. But, you know, he had his, uh, you know, hitched his wagon to, you know, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. So, you know, you're going to go places. Yeah, so I guess the year after Russia, 1813, he's relegated to the sideshow of being governor of the Illyrian provinces. 
Um, but I, you know, he dies that year. Can you kind of clue us into what happened there? Yeah, he gets to the Illyrian provinces, and the commander before uh, Juno, he, he Juno follows his old friend Marmont, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you know, again, there might be some. Again, the symbolism that Napoleon would send one of his closest and dearest friends to the Illyrian provinces, I think, hints at the, you know, maybe some deeper importance that Napoleon placed on that region. So it's a semi-important posting. It could be. It could be. Um, But uh, Juno starts displaying some real signs of of mental decay. Um, he called out the National Guard at one point because he he feared that the sheep in the province were conspiring against him. Mm. Um, yeah, he held a, a dinner party where uh, it, he ate for hours and hours and hours while his guests sat there uncomfortably, and then he herded them all into carriages and drove them at breakneck speeds around. Uh, he appeared at a uh, ball almost entirely naked. Um, he had his uh, hat and his uh, saber yeah. uh, and nothing else. Uh, he mounted an equestrian statue in a similar attire okay. uh, a little bit later on. And so finally the emperor tells Eugene, yeah, man, you got to get this guy out of here. Right. So they eventually, as you know, doesn't go willingly. So they literally uh, dump a, or, or pull a tobacco sack over him and spirit him away in a carriage. Wow. And Napoleon had arranged for him to uh, have some specialists look at him in Switzerland, mm-hmm. but somehow wires got crossed and Juno ended up uh, going right to his uh, boyhood home in uh, Montbard there in, in the province of Cote d'Or in, in today what's Burgundy. And he, at one point, he, he told his father, you know, did you know that I'm a bird and I can fly? And he threw himself out of a window oh my. Uh, and he broke his ankle, but he still ran across the garden, scaled the wall. And, and, you know, they got him back in the house and they, they dressed the wound, but the wound got infected with gangrene. Uh, at one point, the, on the day of his death, his father came in and Juno was stabbing at the wound in the dressing with a pair of scissors. And then, uh, you know, out the window he went again. Wow. Um, and I think it's been widely reported that he committed suicide. I'm not so convinced of that. I think it was he also had untreated syphilis. Right. And so I think between the syphilis and the gangrene and the mental condition he was already in, um, you know, I think there was a delirium involved there that, that, that led to his death. Yeah. And he was a young man. So he's only 42 years old. So. Yep. Absolutely. But to signify how important that, you know, Juno was in the, in the life of Napoleon, um, his, uh, Napoleon's minister of police, Savary, uh, himself in person came to the house to collect or in Paris to collect Juno's papers. Mm. So, I mean, there was not a lackey or a toady sent. Savory himself came to right. uh, get the correspondence between Juno and the emperor. Yeah. So. Well, and I guess just, just to wrap up on this, what do you think his legacy is? He was a good friend of Napoleon, but he, unlike the, the other good friends from the early days, you know, he didn't really, I mean, he rose up, like you were saying earlier, but it's kind of a tragic story, don't you think? Yeah, so... I think tragedy is the best word to describe the situation because of all of the characteristics Napoleon wanted out of his subordinates. 
loyalty would rank first. Mm. And there was not another member of the French army or the French state that was more personally loyal to Napoleon than Juno was. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of ironic. The one guy that gives Napoleon unquestionable loyalty uh, is this kind of perennial screw up. Right. Um, And it, it, it's, it's, I mean, it's sad. I don't know what else, how else to say it. Um, It's a difficult story in that regard. And it's even more tragic because, you know, you think to 1814 where everyone's turning against Napoleon. You wonder if Juno would have stuck by his side. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. He would have been telling Napoleon, don't abdicate. Yeah, right. He would have said, keep it going. Yeah. Right. Right. So I'm not saying that loyalty was necessarily rational. Right. Uh, but it was unstinted. Yeah. Uh, it's just an unfortunate story. And, like you said, uh, his wife, Laura, she lived uh, a bit longer. Uh, they had a number of kids as well. Yes, they did. Uh, and some of the kids they even had in Spain while Juno was on campaign. Uh-huh. So, yep. Uh, she lived until 1838 and then died nearly penniless in a, uh, a nursing home. Mm-hmm. But her funeral was attended by and in large part paid by guys like Victor Hugo and Honoré Bal- uh, de Balzac. So, I mean, she rubbed some elbows with some important literary uh, folks uh, mm-hmm. during the restoration. Yeah, very interesting. So, yep. yeah, I guess if you're interested in the period, it, it wouldn't be a bad thing to read her memoirs, but you, you got to take them with a grain of salt, correct? Uh, you have to take them with thousands of grains <laughs> of salt. <laughs> but yes, uh, it, she has stories that are just, you know, fantastic. And many of them are, are corroborated by, you know, other sources and things, other, other uh, memoirists and whatnot. And, uh, you know, she weaves some interesting stories, um, but you do have to, there's always a, uh, an agenda uh, with her. She right. was not a big fan, ultimately, of Napoleon. Right. So, yeah, although that. she was, uh, you know, she never, she was loyal to Juno, which, uh, you know, might seem a little surprising, but she wasn't the biggest fan of Napoleon. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, Charles, that was very informative. Uh, General Juno, I learned a lot, and hopefully my listeners did as well. I'm thrilled to have you on again. Um, if anyone wants to follow Charles on Twitter, I forgot to mention earlier, his Twitter handle is at Bubbles the Vampire, which I think is the coolest Twitter handle ever. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. But he has a number of followings, and you have some really interesting Napoleonic posts that you put on that on that Twitter page, right? I do. Yeah. I do. And and let me just, if I may make one correction, it's at Bubbles Vampire. Ah, okay. Um, yep. I, I'm called Bubbles the Vampire, but the, the at is Bubbles Vampire without the the in the middle. All right. Well, I really enjoyed listening and uh, really learned a lot. So I thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I had a great time.